Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Back in July, my guests made a splash. Alongside their colleague, Jessica Steinberg, the American Bar Association published their piece entitled America's Lawyerless Courts. It was a stirring indictment of a broken civil justice system that millions of Americans attempt to navigate each year without the help of an attorney. They wrote that there is a massive disconnect between what courts were designed to do, solve legal disputes through lawyer-driven adversarial litigation, and what these courts are asked to do today, help people without lawyers navigate complex social, economic, and interpersonal challenges, most of which are deeply tied to structural inequality. As a result, the judicial role is an upheaval requiring systemic reforms, according to our guests. To learn more about this upheaval and what, if anything, can be done, I'm joined by three of the article's four authors. Anna Carpenter is a professor of law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Alex Mark is an assistant professor of government at Wesleyan University. And Colleen Shanahan is a clinical professor of law at Columbia Law School. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Alex, I wanted to start with you and ask the corollary to the title of this piece. And so I want to know, was there ever a time in America when our courts were sufficiently lawyered? Increasingly, uh, courts aren't handling issues that fit under a traditional header of a legal dispute, which is changing the landscape of who is coming to court. And this is in part due to the political branches of government failing to adequately engage in social provision in the face of mounting poverty and inequality um, in the American population. And a lot of the problems that we're seeing courts deal with in this lawyerless space are due to failures of these political branches to step in and address systemic inequality, either through failures of developing adequate systems of care through affordable housing, affordable health care um, and education, or through developing policy that is meant to disrupt income inequality. So thinking about labor protections, minimum wages that can meet the basic needs of workers. So I guess a shorter answer to this question would be the types of problems that people bring to courts today are contributing to this lawyerless phenomenon that we are observing. So there's no looking back in time to like a period of like when the courts were in Mayberry and everything was good and everyone was happy. There, there was this moment never existed in American court history. Well, I don't know if I would say that that is the response. I think the response is as the government is engaging and engaging poorly in more areas of people's lives, we are just observing a different group of problems that are coming to courts. And those problems aren't generally attended to by lawyers. Got it. So more that the fire hose has been turned up and what's being aimed at at the courts and the rules have not uh, changed to make them more absorbent to the extra water to extend this metaphor. I will extend it further. There are now 12 fire hoses. Okay. All at high power. Yes. And, and one thing to, to point out that's important is that your research looks specifically at state courts. And Anna, it, your work indicates that 99% of all civil cases are happening in state courts. 1% is happening 
and federal. Uh, but your research indicates that even though clearly the vast majority of these civil cases are happening in state courts, we researchers have basically ignored state courts as a place to look into. Uh, why did this happen if that's where all the action is occurring? To start, just to make sure we've got the, the numbers roughly right, I think we're looking at about 97 to 98 at last at recent check of the, the proportion of civil cases that state courts handle as, as opposed to the federal system. Um, and I, I think the why is, is complicated. Uh, one of the pieces that we think is driving this is kind of a, a really basic phenomena that we're all aware of, which is that um, researchers tend to write about what they know and what they've experienced. Um, and the vast majority of people who are legal academics aren't people who've had experiences practicing in state civil courts and practicing the kind of law that people experience in those courts. And so that's sort of, that's a part of that, right? It's just sort of the way that our pipeline for legal academics is built. That's one of the factors um, that, that shapes what people focus on. And so if you go and, and work at a law firm and clerk for a federal judge, um, and then become a law professor, you're not, your aperture is going to be focused on that, you know, uh, two to 3% of, of federal cases. Um, so that's one of the pieces that we see. And so then to go a little bit further then what makes you all different? I mean, you all came out of good, the, the same universities that are producing the researchers that are focused on federal litigation and precedent. I, what happened in your career or life that led you down the state uh, civil law path and, and not to focus on uh, nuances of federal administrative law. How deep do you want to go, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> How deep are you willing to go? I feel like Colleen should start. I think that, you know, it's really about the origin story of each of us as academics. And part of that story is that Anna and I started as clinical professors together. And we taught a clinic where we represented individuals in unemployment insurance matters, right? So the, the smallest of the small civil cases. And the two of us came to this work, came to academia because we wanted to do the teaching and advocacy that's part of clinical legal education. And the research came second. The research came out of the, the experience with students representing litigants in those courts and wanting to know whether our experiences were personal or anecdotal or whether they were a reflection of something systemic. And that led to the, the first research project for which we quickly realized we needed methodological expertise. And we needed methodological expertise from a social scientist who was similarly um, concerned and engaged in questions of civil legal services. Hence, Alex, <laughs> who was then a grad student, um, joined us. And then in that collaboration, we came to know Jessica. Um, Jessica wasn't part of that first project. It was a, a series of studies um, around those courts. Um, but Jessica came to it through her own experience as a legal services lawyer. So she is one of the just small percentage of elite law school graduates who were civil, who was a civil legal services lawyer after graduation. And so through that academic community, the four of us came together in this shared interest. Um, so I think, I also think it's important to say that, you know, 10 years ago when we started into this research agenda, we were very much preaching the gospel of no one is looking at state civil courts. And a lot has changed in the last decade in academia. I think in part, because this is really interesting, right? I mean, this is just, it's really interesting to come to understand the complex series of institutional problems 
um, that are happening in state civil courts and interesting problems draw academic research. And I also think um, there's an increasing body of research and people engaged in studying state civil courts uh, in academia generally, because it's really sort of a remarkable community. It's a community of scholars that is both open uh, to interacting with those outside the academy, which is not always the case, and is very open to bringing in additional people. It's, a, it's an inclusive, encouraging, supportive, and you know, I think in, in many ways, the credit for that development of the community goes to Rebecca Sandifer, um, who I think those of us who care about state civil courts know a lot and access to justice know about. You know, Becky, over the last decade, has really brought a lot of people into the fold, and I think a lot of us feel an obligation to pay it forward. And so state civil courts really are this burgeoning area um, of interest and expertise, and we're building knowledge, which is exciting. And so you mentioned something there that's interesting to me is like over the last 10 years, you're talking about the evolution and the change that's happened in this space. And I wanted to pick at one of those things out of your own work. And so Alex, a number of years ago, one of the kind of foundational pieces you all published put forward four assumptions uh, of what is going on in state civil courts. And they were that the first one, that the adversarial process is disappearing. Second, that most state court business is still conducted through in-person interactions. Third, that the judicial role is ethically ambiguous in pro se cases, self-represented litigants. And then four is that a largely largely static body of written law has not kept pace with this evolving dynamic. I'm curious, just within your window of time in this space, and especially thinking about two and a half years of a pandemic where a lot of stuff went virtual all of a sudden in the courts, like where are these assumptions at? Do they still hold? Have you had to reframe them on account of the changes that Colleen has talked about, but then also the changes that have just been thrust upon us from the pandemic. So I think one part of this that I'll focus on, and then I'll probably tag Anna and Colleen to pick up on others, is how we are thinking about the uh, work of courts that's happening in live court. So, uh, you know, you had asked Anna some questions about the difficulties of doing research in this space And one of the things that makes doing work difficult in this space is the data collection. Uh, So I am sure we are all familiar with the difficulties of studying state civil courts empirically because of the difficulties of identifying data that you can connect across jurisdictions or across states. Um, So a lot of this work has to be done on the ground by the researchers who are interested in these questions. So to half answer, one quarter of your question, um, all of the things that we are talking about are still largely happening um, in these live interactions that uh, court actors are having with parties. But I think a thing that has been changing, one, is a willingness uh, on the part of scholars to do the hard work of doing that observational research in court. And we've also seen this sort of um, democratization of access to live court by the virtue of virtual proceedings um, that we're seeing courts either leave on their YouTube pages, either by accident or on purpose, and also through our ability to access across states so that we can make those generalizable conclusions. One of the things that I, I took away is kind of remarkable from reading your various uh, pieces, and this is kind of the last thing I wanted to do in regards to kind of framing the larger discussion that you're trying to have is all of you are uh, present as identify as civil court 
researchers, but the more I read your work, it's not really a critique of the civil courts as much as it is a critique of the last 40 years of disinvestment into our communities and social structure. Um, and so I, Anna, I can start with you if you want, but I'm curious how you square these two things. Like it's your focus on the institution of courts, but at the end of the day, it's a criticism of privatization, disinvestment, uh, and, and a weak social policy, the best I can tell. Is that really what's going on here? Yes. And, um, and I think the, the layer, a layer that I would add that's, um, become sort of increasingly important in conversations that we're having as a team, um, and, in, in, in work that we're doing across, um, you know, different spaces in our, in our professional lives is that it's also a critique of professional expertise and the way that it's, um, leveraged, used and wielded, right? Um, and so we we can look across. Um, I'm currently in a role right now where I'm involved in higher education administration, right? And when you look across in legacy institutions like higher education, like our courts, what you see is that these institutions are built, the structures are created by a set of professionals based on a set of assumptions and a set of sort of domain expertise and knowledge. And they set it up in the way that they think it should be set up based on their knowledge in a very understandable way, right? This sort of rational and we could put hangs together. And so those institutions sort of by definition are not, are typically not responsive to the actual lived experiences, priorities, capacities of the people that they purport to serve, right? And that we can look, we can make that argument. I, and I would make the argument, we can look across our legacy institutions and see that that's true. And that's a big part of the historical moment that we're all living in, right, is, is questioning these legacy institutions and asking how they can show up differently and better. And Colleen may, may have more to say on these questions. I'll add to that by saying that, um, you know, Jason, you pose the question, you know, it, your research is about courts, but it's really about something bigger or something broader. And I guess we don't see them in the alternative. We see them as consistent. So you can't study courts as institutions without understanding their broader democratic context. And as researchers, at the beginning of this particular project, which was five-ish years ago, we thought the thing we really cared about was judges. We were really interested in just getting in to what state judges do, how they learn, how they're guided, how they're constrained, how they're experienced. And it became very clear that we that we couldn't say anything that thoughtful or that useful about judges without thinking about state civil courts more broadly. And then similarly, you can't say that much that that thoughtful or that insightful or that useful about state civil courts or courts generally without thinking about the other democratic branches. And so it's a fluid um, examination in, in our minds. And I think this question of professional expertise is really interesting in this context, because if you think about the three branches of government, courts are ones that by virtue of the, the sort of conception of lawyers' expertise and the regulation that follows that, constrain access and participation within that branch in a way that at least theoretically doesn't happen in the electoral branches. And so those, all of those topics end up really sort of weaving in and out in our view as we get deeper and deeper into this work. So something that uh, Anna and Colleen that you just said, Anna, you brought attention to this idea that these institutions are built by a specific group of professionals. Colleen, you're talking about the professional expertise that then 
builds the regulations that, that reinforces the institution. Alex, I want to ask you, of the cohort you are with, you are the one person that's not a member of the tribe that Anna and Colleen are talking about that created this problem in the first place. And so I'm curious to what that has been like to you, for you, without a JD working with all of these JDs who are members of, of the group. I definitely feel like I have acquired a JD by osmosis. So I feel if any of my colleagues, institutions wish to print one out for me, that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, so as the outsider, should I even call myself that? That is a bad thing to say. I'm not the outsider. What am I saying? You have a useful lens. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is um, in a similar vein to Colleen's last answer, which is I don't see myself as a political scientist. I don't see myself as a legal scholar. I see myself as an interdisciplinary law and society scholar who is interested in questions of access to justice, which have led me to this space. I think because this group of scholars is so interested in interdisciplinary collaboration, um, as evidenced by our research collaboration, um, it makes it very easy and, as Colleen had said, very fluid to have conversations where a social scientist lens or where a legal academics lens um, may butt up against one another, but may also work together to lead to some improved conclusion or lead to some improvement in the way that we approach something empirically. Uh, I'll also tag that this interdisciplinary collaborative spirit of our group also informs some of the reform propositions that we bring to the table um, in the state civil court space. So our collaboration is meant to be sort of replicated in spaces where we are thinking about how courts can better serve the, the people who are accessing them to try to solve their problems. That makes complete sense. And I had another point of view question. So Alex, you're representing the non-JDs uh, in the conversation today, but I was also super interested in what your thoughts were in regards to who published this piece that brought us together today. So the piece on America's lawyerless courts was published by the American Bar Association, the lawyers organization of organizations. And I was wondering what it meant to you or what should be read into the fact that a piece like this that's talking about the failure of the legal community and that lawyers are not going to be the solution. They can be a part of the solution, according to your research, but by no means is everyone going to get a lawyer is your conclusion. And so what does it mean that the ABA was willing to publish this particular piece with this point of view? So I think what it means, and I'll tag Anna to speak a little bit more about this, given that she is the person cited at the uh, sort of epicenter of the changing tides we are seeing in the legal profession. Uh, I think that this piece was picked up by the ABA because there is this rising tide in the legal profession, this rising recognition that things are changing. And Anna is on the ground in Utah where we are seeing sort of this this uh, this move in the legal profession, and she might be better suited to speak a little bit more to this. 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, we're we're living in a moment, certainly when Colleen and Alex and Jessica and I started our work, you know, about a decade ago, we did not have in our imagination the idea that Utah, you know, just in 2020 would have created an experimental regulatory sandbox to test new ways of delivering legal services from, you know, non-JD, non-lawyer services through human beings all the way through to, you know, AI interventions um, and, and then all the other moves that we're seeing in the paraprofessional space. And so there's there's a way in which in our, in our work, and you see this in the solutions that we propose, that a conversation about reforming courts and a conversation about reforming the rules that govern the practice of law are converging in this historical moment. And in fact, the people, a lot of the, you can sort of see it in the actually in the social circles of people who you know have done civil court work and are now sort of entering conversations about regulatory reform. And so those conversations just sort of um, naturally, for obvious reasons, come together. But you know, I think um, you know, I, I think another thing worth saying is that um, I think we, as a profession, as lawyers are in a place where we are just starting to meaningfully reckon with how badly our profession has failed both ourselves and the public. And that's a really strong statement. And I believe it's it's true. And that's not that we, that's what we intended that any one of us or any group of us intended to set out to do, but it is the outcome of the incentive structures that we've built, the systems that we've built and that we are responsible for, you know, and, and, um, and I think we're, the ABA publishing this piece and being interested in our research is, is part of a sea change of, of beginning. And I say that very intentionally, beginning to reckon with it, because this is obviously a, a decades long, really a generational project of change. And it's very, the conversation is very clearly started. And I do want to name very specifically, speaking of relationships, one key reason why we were able to publish this piece is it was actually solicited by someone named Jim Calloway, who works at the Oklahoma Bar Association, who helps Law Practice Magazine pull together content. And he's, I, we sat together on the Oklahoma Access to Justice Commission, which is where I lived before I, I moved to Utah. And so it's, it's sort of an access to justice relationship and someone actually working in a bar association who's interested in these things and has heard people like me talk about them for years that actually opened the door to that opportunity. We didn't seek it out. It, it came to us. So when it comes to the sea change that you're talking about and the reforms that you're putting forward, I mean, this would be another half dozen shows we could fill with the different solutions that you all have proposed over the last uh, decade and, and more intensely the last five years. So I was curious for the sake of time, if you would uh, join me in a game of agree, disagree. Uh, and I wanted to just throw out a couple of uh, different sentences of ideas that are out there in the ethos, some that you all have put forward, some that you haven't, to get a sense of where you think the reform energy may be uh, best suited. So uh, Colleen, I'll start with you, and then Anna, and then Alex, and we'll just go one by one. There's there's three or four of these. That, they shouldn't be terribly painful. Um, so the first one, judicial rules should explicitly allow judges to aid a self-represented litigant during a hearing. Agree or disagree? That's an easy agree. Anna? Absolutely. No question. Alex? Hard agree. Okay. Courts are a service, not a place. Colleen? You're asking an academic that question? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think both. Both and also. Anna? Yeah, both and also. 
and this is a little solution-y, that question really gets to where we go. What, what are courts for? And, and I think that's not, we can answer that descriptively by trying, like empirically by trying to sort of fight over what they do now. But the more pressing and important question, I think we would probably all argue is, do have argued, is what are they for going forward and how do we build them in a responsive way? Alex, service or place? A more diffuse place and also a service. Okay. Next, uh, unlicensed practice of law rules needs to be curtailed or outright abolished to solve the access to justice crisis. Colleen? I think I have the negatives right in there. I, I agree. There should be regulatory reform. Okay. Abolished or just reformed? Oh, I, I mean, it's a distinction without a difference. Okay. People who are not lawyers now should be encouraged, forget allowed, encouraged to help people who bring their problems to court. Okay. Anna? Yes. Alex? Agree. Man, I need like one like bar president on this call to like throw a wrench into this, this agreement fest that we have. Okay, last one. Uh, and then we can move on to more uh, in-depth answers. Uh, the social problems absorbed by state courts can only be resolved through a fundamental restructuring of our economy and tax system. Colleen. Ooh, I mean, agree and it's complicated. There are things we can do now in our state civil courts to make it better. So, so the, the big change, the ambition, shouldn't be at the expense of things that can help people now. Anna? Yeah, and it gets, to, jumping off of what Colleen said, it gets to sort of zones of responsibility and, and domain power and expertise, right? So yes, there are big structural reforms that we need to make in our democracy to take better care of human beings. And also, judges and lawyers are currently in control of A, courts, and B, the rules that govern the practice of law, and it is entirely within our power to decide what we want those rules and the structures that they create to look like going forward. So let's do something about it. All right, Alex, bring us home on this little experiment. Micro-agree and macro-agree. Okay. <laughs> Perfect social sciences answer. Uh, one of the places I wanted to uh, touch on before we end this conversation today is, you know, we just hit on a bunch of different things, right? We hit on regulatory reform, how judges see their roles in the court, like what does the larger social structure need to look like? Where I think this conversation is chronically lacking, uh, and this is a critique of my own work as well, is that we don't have a clear vision for what self-represented self litigants themselves play in these reforms. Like, is this a group that should be organized? Or are they merely focus groups for people in the game to be able to pull ideas out of? Uh, so I'm curious what your opinion is here. Like, what is the role of self-represented litigants in these various points of reform that we should be considering when improving civil courts? Maybe I'll start and then if others want to jump in. The way I hear your question is, what's the theory of change here? And we've been talking a bunch about a top-down theory of change, right? Your question about what does it mean for the ABA to publish the piece of ours that they did is, is, about, uh, is about a top-down theory of change. And when we talk about the theory of change that flows from our work, we talk about a dual theory of change. One is absolutely top-down. We absolutely are explicitly trying to get elite audiences with power to care about these problems, to recognize their capacity to change them and to do so. But there is an equal bottom-up theory of change. And 
um, you know, we talk about this a little bit in a recent piece in the debt collection context, where we basically say the invest-divest model that's generated criminal justice reform, it really feels salient in the civil justice space. And one of the things that we are very, very clear about personally, the four of us, is that that is something that we can support and encourage and think about and offer to but we are also absolutely not at the center of whatever that movement is and will become. And we absolutely believe that there's a movement that needs to grow. And I think just as we're seeing seeds of the top down, just as we're seeing people, elites, start to engage in these questions of access to justice reform, I also think there's seeds growing um, in the bottom-up piece. And you know, my hope is that Part of that is sort of identified and understood as self-represented litigants as such. So people who are already in state civil courts trying to pursue claims or have recently or have that experience. But I actually think it's bigger than that. I think it's those communities that have the repeated problems where right now the only place to go to get help for those problems is the state civil courts. And so there are pockets of that, right? I think the easiest sort of version to see right now is those around housing, right? Either eviction um, or housing conditions, both of which are areas where there's a lot of really powerful community-based organizing going on. And I think that's growing. I think it's it's more um, early stages in terms of consumers and debt collection, but I really do think that it's it's happening. You know, you look at around different kinds of debt, student debt, medical debt. Um, but I think that that's, that's another place where it's going to grow. And so I think the perspective of self-represented litigants, as you framed it, but actually more broadly, the communities that are most affected by these experiences is essential. Um, and I'm deeply hopeful. And we also are really actively right now trying to understand what our role might be in supporting these movements. I just want to tag into something that Colleen had said about identifying durable communities. Uh, so communities that are repeatedly facing the types of issues that we are talking about, because I think a big challenge in engaging the self-represented litigant in conversations about reform is that the self-represented litigant as an, a, a unit um, is a one-shotter, right? This person does not have a durable interest in reform. Their life is in chaos. They are going to court to try to seek out resources. And when that process is over, they don't, there's not an interest in continuing to engage in this space. So I, I do think that there is going to be a challenge in identifying um, and institutionalizing bottom-up reform. And that challenge is going to be, uh, it's, it's going to come from the difficulties in identifying durable communities who are as interested in reform at the bottom as those groups that are very easy to identify that are interested in reform from the top. And I'll just take what Colleen and Alex have said and build on it and actually take it to a really practical plea for help <laughs> that is place-based and very opportunistic. In Utah, and this is there's versions in other in other you know conversations in other states around reg reform. In Utah, we have because of the sandbox and because of 
the court's leadership and what are what are lots of things that are true about our state, the fact that we're a state of three million people. Like we're not Texas, we're not California, we're not New York. You can actually get the leadership of this state to sit around a single table and make decisions, right? And there's pl obvious political alignment in this state, right? In, in lots of ways um, in terms of the power structures. So we have opportunities to be sort of a laboratory here in Utah in lots of ways. The sandbox gives us, gives this us in law and taking it to the sort of in, uh, question of how to incorporate the priorities and, and desires of people who are affected by courts as institutions, the legal practice law as an institution, we have to resource the function. And this is building off of what Alex was talking about. It will cost time. It costs a lot of time and money, human resource, human capital, basically, to have those conversations and to put people, ordinary people who are affected by an institution in conversation with people who are running that institution and with other allied experts who might have things to say, right, that can support that conversation. So, you know, we can look at another example in law of where um, we, we need investment. Like we need a big national foundation to make a massive investment in resourcing that function. The state of Utah is a place to do it. Hopefully other states will be able to follow. We need to resource the function. Come to Utah, help us resource it. There are people here who are eager to do the work. But we, we need sort of a capital investment to be able to do it. it. Decades ago, the Ford Foundation made a massive investment in clinical legal education. Like we have historical precedent for this in our, in our own, you know, even in legal academia. The Ford Foundation made a big investment in building out clinical legal education. And it's one of the key reasons why we have, you know, the clinical programs that we have today in, in American law schools. So we know how to do this. We've done it before. Big foundations have helped us. And now they need to help us again. Everybody moved to Utah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Everyone moved to Utah. It was not the endorsement I expected coming out of this conversation, yet Yet here we are. Um, well, I mean, that gives us a lot to think about and what can happen in the future. And y'all's research has really illustrated both just the distinct need, but also what is possible um, in states like Utah, Arizona, Michigan are all working in interesting directions, Alaska as well, working in interesting directions to try to absolve this problem, which means that there is plenty of reason to have you all back to continue this conversation as you continue to publish. Uh, and with that, I'd like to thank Anna, Alex, and Colleen for being with us today on Talk Justice. And before I sign off, I have some personal news. This is my last episode hosting Talk Justice. It's been an absolute pleasure helping start and build this platform to boost the important civil justice work going on around the country. Over the past two years, we've had a chance to push the bounds of what we talk about when we talk about civil justice reform. In doing so, we've been able to expand the coalition of Americans who want to come together and support equal justice for all. Luckily, Talk Justice is in good hands and will continue to bring important, new, and diverse perspectives into the fold. My time here would not have been possible without Carl Rauscher, Ron Flagg, Catherine Fanlin, Kristen Sande, and the support of the LSC Leaders Council. I'm indebted to them for giving me the opportunity to sit in this chair and have these conversations. Most importantly, I'm also indebted to you, the listener. It's not easy building a new show and finding an audience. However, you've stuck with us, shared links, and recommended episode ideas, all of which helped us grow and improve. Thank you to everyone that makes this show possible. If you'd like to keep in contact, you can find me on Twitter at jtache or through my newsletter, justicetech.download. That is the URL. For links to what we discussed today, please check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.